Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. Today is the start of the first work week to see many unvaccinated state workers not have to regularly test for the coronavirus. KCRW's Matt Gillum has details on what's behind the policy change. Since July of 2021, unvaccinated state employees and those who declined to share their COVID vaccination status have been required to submit to weekly testing. Not anymore, says a memo from the California Human Resources Department. With recent changes in COVID guidelines at the federal level, the state is adjusting its policy. Given how highly contagious the Omicron strains of the virus are, even among the vaccinated, the CDC recently withdrew its recommendation that the virus be screened for in general community settings. California's Department of Public Health followed suit, amending its guidance for both state employees and all other unvaccinated workers in many situations. While most unvaccinated workers will no longer have to regularly test for COVID, state employees in high-risk or healthcare settings must still be routinely screened. Recent Cal HR data shows about a fifth of state workers remain unvaccinated. For the California Report, I'm Matt Gillum. There's been huge progress in the fight against the mosquito fire burning in the Sierra foothills. And Cal Fire's Jonathan Panberg says this weekend's wet weather has been a huge help. The rain, of course, is going to keep the fire relatively in place where it is. We're not expecting any rapid growth. In fact, we're not expecting any real growth of the perimeter at all right now. The fire has now burned more than 76,000 acres, but is 38 percent contained. And several evacuation orders in Placer and El Dorado counties have been lifted. In other news, Safeway has agreed to pay $8 million to settle allegations that the company violated state environmental laws for gasoline storage. That's after an investigation found storage tank systems under Safeway's California gas stations have failed to comply with spill prevention and safety measures since at least March 2015. Attorney General Rob Bonta and district attorneys from five counties, including Contra Costa and Solano, announced the settlement Friday. Bonta says that California's strict regulations are there to prevent gas and oil leaks from contaminating soil and groundwater. Just one gallon of spilled gasoline can contaminate up to one million gallons of groundwater. Just one pinprick-sized hole in an underground storage tank can leak 400 gallons of fuel per year. Under the terms of the settlement, Safeway is required to hire an environmental compliance manager and submit yearly reports to the California Department of Justice. Open agricultural burning is due to be phased out by 2025 in an effort to reduce harmful emissions. But many farmers are apprehensive of a future without burning. As part of a new KVPR series called When the Smoke Clears, reporters Monica Vaughn and Carrie Klein visited farms outside Fresno to understand why. 
I'm Carrie, a health and science reporter at KVPR. And I met Christopher Frith at his farm near Carruthers. This is the northernmost part of our ranch here at the Walnuts. And then Frith manages a thousand acres of walnuts, almonds, and grapes. He told me he could hardly believe it when he learned that ag burning would soon be banned. What was your immediate reaction? Um, what are we going to do now? Uh, how much more is it going to cost us? For years, burning has helped him manage prunings, limbs lost to storms, and unproductive trees that need replacing. Throughout the valley, growers burn hundreds of thousands of tons of trees and vines each year. It's all about sanitation in a field. But all that burning, it releases harmful particulate matter into the air. I'm Monica, a community engagement reporter in the valley. And that's why air regulators plan to ban ag burning almost entirely by 2025. Here's Michael Benjamin of the State Air Resources Board. I think we're looking at about an 80 to 90 percent reduction in the valley. So how do they plan to do it? Instead of burning, they're going to recycle. Forty miles away, near Firebaugh, massive orange machines hum across a field. Brian Milne is with ag services company H.M. Holloway. It's like playing with Tonka trucks and tractors. These excavators, loaders, and chippers are clearing out 600 acres of almond trees, grinding them into sawdust to be reincorporated into the soil. This practice is called whole orchard recycling, and it's the primary alternative to ag burning being pushed by air regulators. One of the most powerful ag lobbies has already embraced it, the almond industry, which manages 1.6 million acres of farmland and billions in annual profits. Here's Aubrey Betancourt of the Almond Alliance of California. We're trying to lean in and be leaders here, and we've been really happy that our producers have been too. Air regulators are offering cash too, $220 million in grants for growers who adopt orchard recycling. But even with incentives, growers tell us making the switch isn't easy. It's pricey, especially for small farmers. That's something Todd DeYoung of the San Joaquin Valley Air District acknowledges. The small ag operations um, do have a, a little bit more of a challenge. We have instituted higher incentives for those small ag operations. And yet, our reporting shows that the Valley Air District has given only a fraction of its funding to the small farmers that make up a majority of the industry. Growers also tell us about long wait times for contractors. And many worry all that heavy equipment still pollutes the air. Air regulators say yes, it does, but far less than burning. Despite his reservations, Christopher Frith plans to follow the rules. He intends to recycle his almond orchard when it ages out of productivity in a few years. We're going to have to, either that or we're going to become outlaws. By that, he means burning illegally, something he claims other growers have already started doing. For the California Report, I'm Carrie Klein. And I'm Monica Vaughn. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. The San Francisco Police Department may have collaborated with a federal surveillance center that uses facial recognition and social media monitoring without a contract or oversight. That's according to public documents obtained by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. KQED's Aaron Baldessari reports. In 2020, San Francisco police officers investigating a gun case sent out a bulletin to other agencies for information on a suspect. The Northern California Regional Intelligence Center, a federal surveillance agency, responded. A report in the San Francisco Chronicle said the federal agents used facial recognition software to determine the suspect's identity, despite a citywide ban on the technology, and then sent that information back to SFPD. That got Dave Moss of the Electronic Frontier Foundation thinking. So his organization requested the data sharing agreement between the two agencies, but... There is no agreement between SFPD and the Fusion Center, which is just astounding. He says the lack of a contract is concerning because San Francisco has rules in place to regulate what types of technology police can access. There has to be transparency. There has to be community input and there has to be decisions that involve the Board of Supervisors. And we're not sure any of that is properly happening. A spokesperson from SFPD said she couldn't immediately answer questions about the relationship with the surveillance center and representatives from the center didn't respond to requests for comment. For The California Report, I'm Erin Baldessari. The mother of a man who died in an L.A. jail last year is suing Los Angeles County and its sheriff, Alex Villanueva. An official report says Jelani Lovett died from a drug overdose. But his family claims that he was beaten to death. KCRW's Daryl Satzman has more. Terry Lovett said earlier this year that her son Jelani's death fit into a pattern of abuse by sheriff's deputies that has been a problem in the L.A. jail system for years. The public officials see what's going on. Everybody's turning their heads to what's going on. This ain't something that just happened. The 27-year-old died last September in an isolation unit at L.A. Men's Central Jail, reportedly from the effects of fentanyl and heroin, But Terry Lovett says her son had a broken arm, missing teeth, and was covered by cuts and bruises. The lawsuit alleges Jelani was either beaten by sheriff's deputies or that deputies allowed someone else to attack him. It specifically cites an alleged deputy gang, or clique, known as the 3000 Boys, which the lawsuit claims is operating in the cell block where Lovett was housed. The sheriff's department declined to comment on the lawsuit, but noted in a statement that the county coroner determined that Lovett died from drug toxicity. For the California Report, I'm Daryl Satzman in Los Angeles. With hate crimes on the rise in the U.S. and here in California, Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a bill aimed at strengthening penalties for those using hate symbols. Newsom says AB 2282 will bring the strongest penalties possible for anyone using universally recognized symbols of hate, like swastikas. So now terrorizing people with hate symbols all carry equal and strong penalties, up to three years in prison and are $15,000 fines, especially, by the way, for repeat offenders. 
The governor also signed a bill that would provide more money to nonprofits to improve security if they are the targets of hate-related violence. In other news, as California grapples with its homeless crisis, some local governments are fighting with each other over the details of housing and shelter programs and who gets most of the burden. The California Report's Saul Gonzalez tells us about one of those most recent conflicts. The San Diego County city of El Cajon is threatening to fine some local hotel operators up to $1,000 a day for allowing homeless people to stay at their properties using county housing vouchers. El Cajon argues the county program has turned the hotels into de facto and unauthorized homeless shelters. The city also argues that places an unfair burden on El Cajon, a community of 100,000 residents, compared to other cities in San Diego County. Here's El Cajon's mayor, Bill Wells, speaking at a press conference last week about the issue. This all says to me that this is an active, organized uh, operation by the county to infiltrate El Cajon with a lot of homeless people. For whatever reason, and I can only speculate, El Cajon has been chosen as the place to dump homeless people throughout the county. After the press conference, county officials struck back. In a written statement, Nathan Fletcher, the chair of the Board of Supervisors, called El Cajon's mayor, quote, a fraud. By threatening to find hotels, Fletcher accused the mayor of standing in the way of getting more homeless people in San Diego County off the streets and into housing. In all, 18 San Diego County hotels are participating in the county program, where they accept housing voucher payments in exchange for providing temporary shelter for homeless individuals. Eight of the hotels in the program are in El Cajon. For the California Report, I'm Saul Gonzalez. And finally, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences formally apologized to Sachin Littlefeather for its role in blacklisting the indigenous actress nearly 50 years ago. In 1973, Marlon Brando, who was up for Best Actor for his role in The Godfather, sent Littlefeather to reject the award if he won. They were protesting Hollywood's racist depiction of indigenous people and drawing attention to the American Indian movement's occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota. Little Feather accepted the apology at a sold-out celebration of Native American culture at the Museum of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I am here accepting this apology, not only for me alone, but as the acknowledgement knowing that it was not only for me, but for all of our nations that also need to hear and deserve this apology tonight. Little Feather was the first Indigenous woman to step on the Academy stage in 1973. And that's the California Report for Monday, September 19th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford HealthCare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now's the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. Personal Capital, providing people with financial tools like the Retirement Planner to help them achieve their financial goals. PersonalCapital.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at schmidtocean.org. 
Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 